Okay, so we'll record in a second, but do we want to, um, do we want to have a condo wearing her cannibalism? Do we need that? I don't know. That seems slightly ridiculous. It does, but, I mean, it's here now. Whatever. I guess, uh, hi, welcome to the Gratuitous Cannibalism Podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Eflin. And I'm your co-host, Alex Graham. <laughs> Every week this bracket, we've had a theme, and I guess this time around it's cannibalism. Yeah, also insurance people being shitty. Yeah. And, you know, being stranded at sea, but also there's a lot of episodes of this that's just a thing. Yeah, like, that's that's almost half of our bracket. Yeah. We should probably talk about our bracket. Welcome to episode 7 of Our Bracket on a Boat. <laughs> this week we'll be discussing Life of Pi from 2012, as well as In the Heart of the Sea from 2015. Both of these are big-budget special effects uh, adventures, both based on books. Well, kind of. In the Heart of the Sea is based off of real-life events that made it into a book. Well... Yeah, but also In the Heart of the Sea by Nathaniel Philbrick. It, it's a really good book. People should read it. Okay. <laughs> That's why I saw the movie, because I read the book and I was like, oh, now it's a movie. Awesome. It's one of those, like, go off on a tangent for a while for this chapter that so can talk about, like, the way that starvation affects the body kind of stuff. Oh, so, like, the other book that is was created after these, based off of these events, Moby Dick. Yeah, but with, you know, more scientifically accurate research. <laughs> But we're not here to talk about uh, the scientific accuracy of Moby Dick right now. We're here to talk about Life of Pi. We are. A struggling writer is told that a man named Pi has a story that he could turn into a book. Pi then proceeds to tell him about his upbringing in India. His father owned a zoo. He took interest in multiple religions as a child and continues to practice them all simultaneously. At 16, his parents decided to move to Canada, where they can sell the zoo animals and settle into a comfortable life. Pi resists, but he has no say in the matter. While traveling on a cargo ship with the animals, the ship hits a storm and begins taking on water. Pi tries to find his family, but is unable. As he's getting into a lifeboat, a zebra escaped from storage, rushes on deck, and falls into the boat, causing it to drop into the water, with Pi the only human on board. The ship sinks, and the next morning, the only survivors Pi finds are the zebra, a hyena, and an orangutan. The hyena eventually kills the other animals and turns towards Pi. Then, a tiger emerges from below a tarp on the boat and kills the hyena. Pi then attempts to survive at sea with a tiger aboard the ship. He eventually trains the tiger to accept him and spends his time caring for himself and the large cat. Pi eventually reaches shore in Mexico and is rescued while the tiger disappears into the jungle. Afterwards, he's questioned by insurance agents looking to understand how the cargo ship sank. They don't believe Pi's first story, and it's revealed that the story may be false and that the animals represented other human survivors. Pi says it doesn't matter which story is true, as the outcome is the same either way. The author chooses to accept the story of the tiger. It's a very high-concept thinking movie, but not one that feels like it, you know? There's a lot of eye candy for those who are kind of just want to be lost in the moment. Yeah, you got these really well-rendered animals, you've got these beautiful shots of the ocean, you've got uh, Ray Spall. <laughs> Intermittently. He's honestly not in most of the film. Right. And while there are a few moments where you can, like, hmm, that's CGI... Mostly, it looks really good. Like, the, the motion of the animals, like, really feels real. Like, they feel like they have, like, actual weight and muscle to them. Mm -hmm. uh, we should also point out that this is our first film that actually centers a person of color. Mm -hmm. Pai Patel is Indian. Mm -hmm. And he's portrayed by four different actors throughout the different ages and flashbacks. And honestly, for the most part, there are very few white people in the movie. Yeah. It's like the cook, Rafe Spall, and that's about it. Yeah. Honestly, our character list is Pi and Richard Parker, and then that's about it, really. And Richard Parker is the name of the tiger. Uh-huh. The writer doesn't even get a name. Nope. He doesn't need one. The tiger being called Richard Parker is just so pleasantly surreal. 
it helps you like get into kind of a surreal space early on before the film goes hard into that. There's even a point where Pi is explaining the tiger's name and that it was a mix-up on the paperwork and like they caught it, but it was just so whimsical that they decided to keep the tiger's name as Richard Parker. Richard Parker was a tiger? Yeah, he got his name through a clerical error. A hunter caught him drinking from a stream when he was a cub and named him Thirsty. When Thirsty got too big, the hunter sold him to our zoo, but the names got switched on the paperwork. We laughed about it, and the name stuck. I still don't know how much of this movie I think is real and how much isn't, and the Richard Parker thing is part of that. Mm-hmm. I'd imagine those records might not be easy to find at this point if they were like all being kept on the boat. As far as I know, like... I'm not sure any of Life of Pi is based off of real-life events. Oh, yeah, no, sorry. I mean, like, in-universe. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> to my knowledge, also, th- that. Yeah. Can you imagine Angley making a biopic? <sighs> anyway, carry on. We're talking about the eye candy, and this film is so much more colorful than anything else we've had on the bracket so far, with probably the exception of Hotel Transylvania. Right. But here we're, you know, broadly using... Real or at least photo real things. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And the colors are amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm so sad I didn't see this in theaters. I think the closest palette comparison I make is like Moana. I definitely see some of the influence that this had on Moana. There, there's like these psychedelic color sequences, which are just gorgeous to watch. Like there's one with like these bioluminescent think krill at night and then there's a whale that kind of jumps over the lifeboats gorgeous pops of color Mm -hmm. and the sea changes color too like it's not so a lot of these movies kind of have just like one color for the ocean and basically all times maybe you get like one variation for sunset but this has like beautiful grays vibrant blues deeper blues near blacks Uh, there's a really great scene where pie's boats reflected we don't really see the sea at all it's just the stars on the boat Mm -hmm. like this is definitely a spectacle movie, but but one that feels earned as opposed to unnecessarily flashy. Mm-hmm. It's not just that the whole film is colorful. Like, it uses color incredibly well. Color is often used as a shorthand for the emotional landscape of Pi. There's kind of two settings. You've got saturated for when he kind of believes in whimsy and wonder, and then desaturated for a few moments during the narrative when he's a bit disheartened. He doesn't really have that belief to him. Mm-hmm. It's simple. It's not necessarily innovative, but it works really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, watching through this, the visual style has some similarities to something like Wes Anderson or a Tim Burton film. I'd say more Wes Anderson than Tim Burton because I feel like the still feels more or less grounded in reality. Yeah, like when I'm thinking Tim Burton, I'm more thinking things like Big Fish or Edward Scissorhands as opposed to some of his more fantastical work. Mm, sure, sure. Which I know he's more known for. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. The thing is, Life of Pi only occasionally dips into that surrealism. It's kind of in this amorphous space between the two. I put it as less surreal and maybe even more psychedelic because I feel like it's, it's very much a like journey into the soul kind of thing for mm-hmm. her pie. Yeah. And given the etymology of the word, his, his soul is literally in a deluge. That kind of thing can get really old really fast, but the variety of scenes, the amount of the actors are very compelling in what they're doing, and the fact that we kind of know where some of this is going, it draws us along in ways that don't feel pretentious or needlessly trippy. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that I think really works with movies. Sometimes trailers and promotional stuff isn't healthy for a film, but here I knew going in that somehow this kid and this tiger were going to wind up on a boat. And so even while the first act doesn't really get us to that point, I'm just like, okay, there's the tiger, there's the kid, what's going to happen here? Mm-hmm. The reveal that the tiger and Pi wind up on a boat 
doesn't detract from the rest of the film. It doesn't oh, yeah. like it's all about the journey getting there and what happens after that's the case. And we talked about this that uh, that first act before we even get onto the boat where. It's just Pi's backstory. Yeah, it's just Pi's backstory. It's still a fairly enjoyable, like, short film kind of thing. It would be a decent little, like, 30-minute thing you'd watch in class about this person who became famous later. Yeah. All of the parts of this film do a pretty good job of, of supporting themselves. Like, they're not just, uh, okay, we've got to get through this part so we can get to the fun stuff. Each part of this film is enjoyable in its own right. There have been a number of films on this bracket that cannot say as such. Yeah. And I think one of those things that makes the first part so engaging is there's a lot of witty dialogue. Yeah. When Pi is talking about his uh, adoption of Catholicism and how it interacts with his Hindu upbringing, he makes a joke about Catholic guilt. And as a lapsed Catholic, it is hilarious. (laughs) I didn't know Hindus said amen. Catholic Hindus do. Catholic Hindus? We get to feel guilty before hundreds of gods instead of just one. There's a bit when Appa is announcing that uh, they're headed to America and he says, We will sail like Columbus. And someone points out, But Columbus was looking for India. I believe that's Pi specifically. Yeah. Like, your, your analogy supports my point. I guess another part of it. Like, Pi is a very sharp kid, but he's very sharp and bright and inquisitive and curious in ways that will pay off for him later. But it never feels cartoonish or uh, unrealistic. Mm-hmm. He's just like one of those kids who kind of is probably going to not do well in school because he's kind of too smart for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do actually get quite a bit of pie in school. There's a whole little subplot about him dealing with bullying. So Pi's full first name is Piscine, as in like fish. He's named after a pool in France that a friend of his father went to and was kind of awed by. And Piscine, really close to pissing. So, a lot of name-calling. Yeah. And then one year, he gets ahead of it and just becomes the kid who knows all about the number pi. Mm-hmm. And just every class, he keeps kind of, like, one-upping himself to the point where, in mathematics, he's, like, listing off hundreds of places of pi, and the whole school is just coming to watch him. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of ingenuity that... Pi builds up in the first act and then pays off in the second. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a good setup because some of these movies, we get right to the disaster and this character just winds up being very competent. We don't really have like that, where they got the practice for that mm-hmm. coming in. Yeah. And there's a lot of really good like problem solving stuff in here. Like there's some fun construction of things to keep the sun off of you or to move around the tiger. There's a really good bit where... Pi is really sure he's going to tame this tiger, and it does not work at all. Step four. Disregard steps one through three. Mm-hmm. Like, the problems that come up with just weather and nature being being a dick to a person on a boat are still fun to watch, because Pi's coming up with good solutions um, and burning through resources, but he has enough to be okay, and you're like, okay, cool. There's this trade-off of like him slowly whittling down what he's got. It's not like, oh, they're all gone now. Yeah, we, we actually see some of the fun ingenuity that comes from being in a rough situation with limited resources. We get the sort of thing that we were hoping for more of in Adrift. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's sort of better Adrift. I think another thing that helps is the first act of the film is very heavily narrated by present-day Pi as an adult. Whereas after the shipwreck and he's kind of on the boat, most of it is narrated via 
uh, 16-year-old Pi on the boat writing in a journal just to kind of keep himself sane. And I think that transition is really good for demarcating that shift from the real to the not quite real. To the narrated. Mm -hmm. And there's even a bit where you were like, wow, this has been a very like dialogue-free narrative. We like pause, talk about that for a second, then you press on pause, and the narration came back in. So the moving you exactly when the audience kind of needed to have their handheld a little bit and have some human voices in here. Like, mm-hmm. it was excellent timing. The pacing of this movie is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Also, can you talk about The Crash? How The Crash is, like, weirdly chill? It is not shot in as chaotic and catastrophic a way as other boat crashes we've seen in this bracket. There's a lot of one-shot stuff, a lot of slowly moving camera, even as things are going badly, that make it oddly serene. Yeah, I think part of that is we have limited locations. Like, there's the ship hallway where Pi is trying to get back to his sleeping quarters where his family is, and that, that's already been filled with water. Then he's, as the storm is hitting and the ship starts taking on water, he's already out there kind of just enjoying the storm and getting tossed around by the waves. And then we go back to that same exact spot for when he is trying to get into the lifeboat. Well, where other people are pressuring him to get into the lifeboat. You, you need to save yourself. Mm-hmm. And then our third location is just in the boat and then watching as the ship goes down in the background. Yeah. And it's still dramatic and exciting. It's just a very different kind of dramatic and exciting. Yeah. And it's also much more readable than a lot of the other Mm, ship sinkings that we've had. I think the only one that is kind of in the same territory is Titanic. Yeah. But that's because that's like half of the film. So you have to have it where it's readable. There are things that are obscured via the storm and the darkness, but there are conscious reasons for those. Like, Pi sees someone who is struggling in the water and kind of reaches out to them, and then he realizes, oh shit, that's the tiger. Yeah, that was great. It's here, right, where this happens, where Pi goes into the water at one point, and he like, falls off the boat, and he sees the, the ship sinking into the sea, but like all the lights are still on, so this is like beautiful, surreal thing in the darkness. Mm-hmm. Oh, that shot is so good! Yeah. The last big thing that we need to talk about is the... I don't want to call it a twist, but it's also not quite a reveal. It's a... Complication? Yeah, a complication at the end of the film. Where the insurance people don't believe Pi's story about, you know, surviving with this tiger that was nowhere to be found when he was rescued, and this mystical carnivorous island that just came out of nowhere that no one ever seen before. And... So he tells them the second version, and the writer asks you what that is. And I caught it. I believe that you didn't. Mm -mm. The writer understands how certain bits pattern onto different characters in the two different stories. And you felt that we didn't need it. I I was okay with it because I'm not always good at picking up on stuff like that. At least not on my first watch through. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. But the writer points out how the... Human characters in the second story map onto the animal characters in the first story. So the hyena is the cook. The sailor is the zebra. Your mother is the orangutan. And you're the tiger. And with that understanding, the entire film takes on a whole new meaning about his survival also being him coming to terms with the traumatic experience that he's gone through and the difficult things he's had to do to survive. Before all this happens, Pi is a staunch vegetarian and abhors violence. 
And throughout the course of the film, he needs to perform violence in order to defend himself, in order to feed himself. And with the tiger being the personification of that. Mm -hmm. And then he reaches shore, he's rescued, and the tiger just disappears off into the distance. And he just lets that part of himself go. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have to live with it for the rest of his life. This is a distinctly separate part Mm -hmm. of the experience. Yeah. It's really interesting and in a certain way cathartic, that reveal. Yeah. And what makes it kind of interesting is he has this very vivid bit where he talks about crying because Richard Parker didn't turn to look as he was leaving. That he left him so unceremoniously, which that was heartbreaking to me. I, I felt very sad. And if you're going with the second narrative, the more realistic one, wondering what that means for him is a interesting question. Like how that detail applies to this more grim, realistic version of the story. Mm-hmm. The movie seems to come down on the side of the tiger was real story, which I think is interesting. And I can't tell if the movie wants us to accept that as the case or if it's more the character deciding to do that. I read it as more of the character deciding to do that. Allowing the tiger story to be the official one gives Pai some privacy. It allows him to not have that traumatic experience constantly brought up, not have it be out in the open. He can distance himself from it. It's a healing process for him. And allowing that for a very traumatized 16-year-old boy is incredibly reasonable for the insurance agents to do. Because as Pi said, the story doesn't really matter. The outcome is the same either way. Right. Neither explains what caused the sinking of the ship. And no one can prove which story is true and which is not. In both stories, the ship sinks, my family dies, and I suffer. Yeah. I think which version a person chooses to believe can be an interesting tools to self-understanding or to meditate on. I feel feel like the movie isn't so much preachy as it is a meditation tool. Yeah. This movie doesn't really provide answers. It just asks questions. Like, my interpretation of this is Pi's way for him to distance from the trauma, that's completely my interpretation. The film doesn't spell that out at all. I can draw inferences and make arguments based on what the film shows, but that's only one interpretation. And there are many other reasonable ones. Yeah, especially since, I mean, this is, we don't know what kind of universe this is set in. So this could be like a universe where more magical things happen and we just don't know about it because it's only it's only the self-contained bubble. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the gentleness of the movie with allowing people to, to make their own choices with things. Mm-hmm. Which I think applies really well with, with what Pi was dealing with, with his dad, where his dad always seemed to be very annoyed with Pi wanting to have his own path in life and to kind of make his decisions for himself. And so I like the movie is refuting his dad's approach to life. Yeah, really refuting his insistence on rationality and... And objectivism. Yeah. Speaking of rationality and objectivism, they're not related. I just wanted to have a transition to In the Heart of the Sea, which is honestly a very similar story. The narrative beats are similar. How the story is told is very different. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is also a story in which a... Writer shows up and asks a person about his experiences as a kid having a very traumatic growing experience involving a large predator on the sea. And and being stranded and having to eat people. Yeah. So, in the heart of the sea, from 2015, bisexual disaster Herman Melville arrives late one night to the home of old man Nickerson, who has a dark tale to tell. 
It starts when he was a cabin boy serving under Owen Chase, a Chris Hemsworth, who continues to be slighted for his role as, ca- as captain by the whaling company he keeps working for. They have assigned him under Captain George Pollitt, spoiled son of a noble whaling family, and an incompetent captain at the boot. They butt heads and fail to bring in whales until they go looking into the offshore ground in the deep middle of the Pacific. Initially meeting with success, it turns to failure when Owen Chase tries to punish a whale who attacked one of their boats, and the whale winds up destroying their entire ship. They go adrift with only what they can carry. The rest of the movie is, is a bunch of people slowly starving and drifting to shore, and eventually resorting to cannibalism. Returning home, Chase and Paula both refuse to cover up the truth that the whales are fighting back now, but the whaling company hushes it up anyway. Chase gives up on whaling, wishing Nickerson all the best. Nickerson's dark tale told, a weight lifts from him. Herman Melville is somehow inspired by all this to write his queer whaling masterpiece Moby Dick, at last earning the respect of his celebrated friend, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Someone discovers oil on the ground, implying that the, that the whaling industry may end soon. I have slightly editorialized this narrative. Uh, I can't help it. As you said last episode, you are a dickhead. I am. I was talking to someone at work about this, how there's something about Moby Dick that affects like a certain wavelength of person, where you either don't give a shit or it speaks to your soul on a very deep level. And I'm one of the second group of people, and I don't understand why. None of us know why. <laughs> We're sort of stuck like this. <laughs> so yeah, this is based on... The book of the same name by Nathaniel Philbrick, which is a nonfiction narrative about the actual real-life sinking of the whale ship Essex, goes basically like I described. It boat, it whale, it sink, it cannibalize. The movie took this book that is a kind of slow, painful exploration of what happens when the body doesn't have food, and it's like, what if this was a blockbuster? What if we got several Avengers in this? What if it was the Avengers and all the people who aren't busy filming Game of Thrones right now to be on a boat? Yeah, because let's see, we have Killian Murphy, we have Tom Holland, we have Chris Hemsworth. We have Ben Wishaw, we have the guy who played Maester Lewin, we have Arabella Strange (laughs) playing Arabella Strange. Everything prior to the Essex being sunk by a giant whale, all all of those whaling scenes are very action movie oriented, Mm -hmm. like the way they're shot and paced, the... Captain and first mate butting heads with each other and arguing. It feels like the captain is asking Owen Chase to turn turn into his badge and gun. He absolutely tells him to turn into his badge and gun. We will assemble the crew, inform them that we will be returning to Nantucket for repairs. You will then apologize to them for interfering with the captain's order, which nearly cost the lives of every man on this ship today. What? I will accept your resignation upon our return to port. That will be all. It was your order to set stunsels, sir. That decision was sound. The men needed testing. So you send them into a storm? That was unlucky. No, it was bad seamanship. And blaming misfortune is just plain weakness. Damn your impertinence. They're really playing up the whole rival captain's angle thing. That was, according to the book, probably a realish thing, but maybe not quite to this level. Yeah. But they, they had a, like, stock Hollywood narrative to play. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that would be all well and good, but that tone completely clashes with them slowly starving to death trying to survive on the sea. Mm-hmm. It'd be fine if it was like an Act 1, Act 2, Act 3 thing where Act 3 was all the starving on the sea, but it's like the first half of the movie and then we go to a different, sadder movie. Mm-hmm. The threads are still there. There's still some continuity there. It narratively is coherent. It's just not like tonally coherent. Yeah. It's hard to make an action movie if all of your characters are in the same 10-foot boat. Mm-hmm. Not impossible. Right. But the boats aren't going very fast. No. Very different movie if these boats had speedboats. 
I know you were a huge fan of the color grade for this movie. I really was. So we are treated to a very limited color palette. We have blue, yellow, green, and brown. And I think it works really well for the film. It visually sets things apart. Everything feels very, like, of the sea, even when we're on Nantucket. Even when Nickerson is telling his story to Melville, the colors are very consistent. And when we switch tones from fighting whale action movie to slowly starving on the ocean, the color grade remains consistent, but we're treated to much more yellows, and it almost feels like the sea is a desert. They actually have a line about that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. There were weeks in the doldrums. That part of the Pacific is more desert than ocean. The sun beating down. My fear, all I could think about, was that everyone would die and I'd be the last left alive. I find it ugly, but it's intentionally so, so I'll allow it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's not as unpleasant to look at, but it is most unpleasant to look at when the characters are having the most unpleasant time of their lives. So it works on that level. And when it's not doing that, these are really good shots. Like They're still good to look at. And the overhead with the whale just under the water is pleasant. I don't blame you for not liking how this movie looks. It's a very drastic interpretation it's so very visually different from a lot of the other things that we've seen on this bracket. I'm like, yes, finally, someone doing something different with these same exact sh- scenes and shots. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if it's so much that I don't like it. It's more that I don't enjoy looking at it, but I respect that that was an intentional choice, so I'm okay with that, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, like how you don't simply sympathize with Immortan Joe from Mad Max, but you still understand why he's here in the narrative. The, the main villain of this movie is the color grade. <laughs> it is an MCU movie. <laughs> Also, this movie is really gory. Some of the whaling scenes are just ugh. And then the bit where Chris Hemsworth just throws Tom Holland into the skull of the whale so he can get, get that sperm that's like deep in there. You want to explain that anymore? Or? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. So spermaceti, like the oil that is in the, the skulls of whales that allow them to dive and rise again. Obviously. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like internal waterproofing for their respiratory system because like the blowhole and everything. Exactly. It is very comparable to, to Spunk, and that's why it's named that, because for a while that was just like what people thought it was. <sighs> Poor sperm whales. <laughs> and m- many whales have this, but sperm whales have the most, which is why they're called that. Look at the way their heads are shaped. Of course they have the most. There's a whole chapter <laughs> in Moby Dick that's just about people squeezing the sperm and how they wind up holding hands because their hands are deep in the- these barrels of-, of this white fluid. It's a whole thing. <laughs> Gay. <laughs> really is. Uh, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. I have a whole speech. Um, I'm sure you do. Yeah. Yeah. It is like it really like highlights how horrifying this industry is and how deeply gross what's going on is and why it's really good that we've probably stopped using this as our primary source of income for many people. Mm-hmm. I will give the film credit for highlighting capitalism is the problem mm-hmm. in all of this like capitalism is what forces the first mate and captain into having to work together and that kind of leads to most of the problems that the Essex runs into mm-hmm. they're also assholes at the end trying to cover up the whale attack and everything like that this is 2015 i think it would have been interesting to draw some parallels or some like in universe conjecture onto the new up-and-coming oil industry, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really attempt to do that. I kind of read it as being in there, if only because I read the 
the oil barons who are kind of stripped of any of their original characteristics from from history and are just replaced with the abstract idea of an oil baron. Like, I, it was there to me, but yeah, it could have gone deeper. It could have gone harder. Yeah. It was not a strong push to draw those parallels. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, I get it. Hollywood isn't always quick to criticize people who are embroiled in the finances of the industry. Mm-hmm. One big question that I have about this movie is, why adapt In the Heart of the Sea as opposed to just adapting Moby Dick if you wanted to turn it into an action movie? Like, I feel like Moby Dick is much more in line with that sort of thing, because you've got Ahab in the whale boat on, on his rant about, you know, the great beast. Literally summoning the devil as part of a blood ritual. <laughs> it happens. It's a really amazing book, you guys. <laughs> I think that part of it is, like, there have been a number of Moby Dick adaptions over the years. None of them are really stand out, you know? There's not, not, like, the definitive adaption. I think they might have been just thinking that we have this book that just came out. It's doing numbers. Let's adapt that. The book version of this movie mentions her Melville well, a footnote. It's supposed to be making him the frame narrative. I get why they kind of Moby dick this a bit. But I think, like, kind of my point is that there hasn't been a definitive adaptation of Moby Dick. You could have tried to make that. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's probably going to happen at some point. Eventually, we will get there. Maybe it'll be the musical that is that was going to be on Broadway right now if it was not for the plague. It might have been, like, trying something new. Maybe, 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 like, a rights thing. I'm pretty sure Moby Dick is in the public domain at this point. Oh, sure. I mean, like, maybe someone, like, bought the rights to the book and wanted to capitalize on that. That's true. Yeah. It was the offshore grounds, and they took a risky gamble. This movie was not a huge hit. We're not we're not getting in the heart of the sea, too. Ghost of Georgia. <laughs> hey, Equalizers, I know you're listening. <laughs> to put this in context, I saw this in theaters, like, the the week it came out. It's got several Avengers. It's got a big budget. There were, like, five people in the theater. And, like, me and my friend were two of them. So, they did not have a draw. This was not... Yeah, I do, I do not recall any advertising for this. I had to drive like to the town over to find a theater where I could watch it. Yeah, th- this did not get a wide release. I feel like it could have done well. Like I feel like if they pushed a little harder for it, it might have been at least a modest success. Because it is well acted, visually impactful. We don't have a lot of movies like this right now. It has some star power. It's not awful. I think its biggest problem is the huge tone shift halfway through the film. Mm-hmm. It is kind of hard to sell what crowd this movie's for. It's a little bit too actiony to be just a, like, period piece drama, but it's a little bit too... It's too that second act thing that you talked about to be just, here, watch this action movie. Mm-hmm. If you're not interested in the internal sta- internal struggles of characters, then there's not enough going on the second act to draw you in. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not bad. We've seen way worse thirds at- third acts in these films. Cough, the perfect storm. Cough. Cough. Yeah, like, this does have some very compelling character uh, arcs. Like, I like that Captain Pollard grows a spine over the course of this movie. I like that his cousin, uh, Henry Coffin, just is the worst the whole time. And when they're all deciding who they should eat, he's like, no, pick me instead, and shoots himself and drops a pistol over the side. <laughs> I like the whole thing where Joy, uh, Killian Murphy's character, has his whole arc about alcoholism. It's all compelling. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's not all that much fun to watch, which is probably why they keep, like, Having the whale chase them for thousands of miles. Mm-hmm. You know, that thing that whales, a highly social group-based species, are wont to do. Okay, hear me out. What if we have, like, the whale version of a serial killer? Yeah, there is a version of the movie that is basically, like, a slasher, but the slasher is a whale. And that sounds amazing, honestly. Which I guess is just, like, the entire creature feature genre. But Yeah. Yeah. There's literally a movie with that, but it's not a sperm whale, it's an orca. Yeah. The orchid, like, destroys a power plant. 
God, I love movies. Uh, also kind of Jaws. Like, Jaws is functionally that. Yes. Yeah. And to a certain extent, the Meg. And this is functionally Moby Dick adaption where the person who has the vendetta is the whale. <laughs> <laughs> what a twist! Which leads to this really weird scene where Owen Chase is about to, like, finally spear this whale and then he, like, looks into the eye and they have this, like, moment and the soundtrack soundtracks really hard and he just decides not to. And then the whale lets him go. I mean... It's probably a good thing that he did, because they're just in this tiny little lifeboat. Yeah, it would not have gone well for them, but it was kind of this interesting moment of, like, this character having something go on inside of his head that is not... He doesn't verbalize it, he doesn't talk about it later, he just has this interior change and growth that you kind of have to make your own decisions about. Mm-hmm. Much like Life of Pi, but less good. <laughs> Much more minor quibble I have with this film. Chris Hemsworth is trying so very, very hard not to sound like an Aussie in this, and it is... He's trying so very hard, and I appreciate his effort, but he sounds like a Kennedy. His accent visits more countries than the Welsh of Essex does. <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah. He's gotten better about that over time, but he, he can do a non-Australian accent, but he can't do a specific accent that isn't from Australia. <laughs> Sweet lad. Mm-hmm. Speaking of acting that doesn't go very well, they have a child actor in this because when Owen leaves for the sea, uh, his wife is pregnant and she's going to have a kid. And when he comes back, it's been years. So now this kid is a toddler. And she's like, here, look, it's your daddy. And this kid does nothing shit. <laughs> Most very non-acting child in the world. I mean, to be fair, hey, this is your dad. This person that you've never fucking seen before. <laughs> yeah. Like, I agree. But the kid does not have any reaction to this at all. And you can tell that the adults are trying to, like... They're trying to carry the scene, but the scene is just them watching this child act and just not doing so. Mm-hmm. It makes me laugh every time I watch this movie, which is frequently. <laughs> this is a good enough time to get into this. This is one of my favorite movies for reasons I cannot fully articulate, but I'm going to try anyway. It's a, it's a comfort movie in the same way that like The Mummy and National Treasure are. It's doofy and heartfelt, and I appreciate it. And I appreciate how they kind of tried to make it very commercially viable and like very head under- they they got Chris Hemsworth for the main character, but it still somehow winds up being a deeply gay narrative. In order to understand what I'm talking about, you have to be intimately familiar with Moby Dick and the history of Herman Melville as a person. Herman Melville had a long-standing something with Nathaniel Hawthorne, his contemporary, who was a more respected but also shittier writer. He, he's known for um Starlight Letter. That's probably what you know from. That's the the one that EZA was based on. <laughs> You know, for for the millennials out there. And a whole thing for her in this movie is that he wants the respect of this person, and they keep bringing it up. And at the end, Tom Snickerson's like, hey, are you going to use everything I told you? And her is like, you know, I won't mention the cannibalism, I'm just, but this is giving me courage to do this book that I want to write. So he writes this book that is basically the whole Wilshire Essex thing, more or less as it was, with you know, some of the character names changed and more diversion into what is a god and all that jazz. And then... 40 chapters of, whoops, only one room in the end, bedroom fic between Herman Melville Stanton and this other guy. And so it's very clear that this is a love letter to Nathaniel Hawthorne, and the movie's telling us that that's what he got the courage to do from this. He got the courage to write a gay love letter. I mean, to be fair, like, there's this, that one line in the film, like, Sir, we've come so far. We've come to an end. We have an agreement, sir. Take the money or leave. The devil's bargain. No, sir. The devil loves unspoken secrets. Especially those that fester in a man's soul. What's yours? Nickerson has like, yeah, I had to eat a person in order to, to survive after the Essex sunk. And Melville is like, yeah, I, I fuck dudes. <laughs> yeah. 
And at the time, those were unfortunately pretty similar in, oh god, how could you? <laughs> exactly. We haven't gotten to the bit where Nickerson is like, I could never tell my wife, would she love me if she knew? And she's like, walks into the next room. Yes, I could. You could have told me the whole time. I've been listening this entire time. What the fuck, dude? <laughs> it's amazing. So really what, what this movie is saying is, men, suck it up and be emotionally vulnerable. Exactly. But yeah. This movie ends with, like, this has been a long night of the soul, and now the sun is rising, and they're talking about how, like, the oil industry, as it was then, is about to radically change because we have found a way to extract oil without needing to kill whales. And in the same way that, like, her Melville has found the strength to go be gay and all that jazz. And when I watched this, the profound feeling of hope that that inspired me, both as a queer person and also as someone who's, like, heavily opposed to the oil industry and is excited for us to move towards a greener future... It hit me hard, and that's why I listen to the soundtrack to this at least once every other week. Like, I was listening to it on the ride home from work today because I just really love the, the way it sounds and the way it makes me feel. I don't know. Yeah. That's my spiel. Oh, the soundtrack by uh, Roque Banos. It's a beautiful score. It's not that prominent in the movie. It's not The soundtrack isn't going as hard as it could be, even though the soundtrack is amazing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I acknowledge that while I love this movie a lot for a lot of weird reasons, it's maybe not as strong as it could be. There's a lot of things that don't really work. Yeah, I I really think that the film's biggest hurdle is the total dissonance between the two halves. And Life of Pi doesn't have that. Life of Pi is fucking fantastic. Life of Pi is very fantastic. All the parts work together really well, and even as it shifts radically from one thing to another that it's doing, it all feels like it's in the same space. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm voting for Life of Pi to move forward. Yeah, for sure. But also, we haven't even gotten to our, our end segment, which is the Ship of Theseus Award. So our two actual ships here are the Simpson as well as the Essex, mm-hmm. both of which sink. Mm-hmm. The Essex sinks harder. It gets lit on fire. The Essex does sink harder. However, there are more surviving like whaling boats from it than the one lifeboat from the Simpson. That's true. And they do have to rebuild some of those boats in order to make them more boaty. So I guess in the Heart of the Sea would win the uh, Ship of Theseus Award. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll allow it. Congrats on the Heart of the Sea. You still win the Constellation Prize. <laughs> you get to rebuild yourself. Yes. This is a fun episode. Like, they're both movies that I really enjoy watching. Mm-hmm. Definitely, I definitely recommend both of them. Uh, if you're into that kind of thing. Even someone who is not super impressed with the Heart of the Sea, like I would watch it once. Yeah, definitely. If you're the kind of person who's just amused by seeing people you know in things, uh, this is definitely that kind of thing. Yeah, like, if you want to see really prominent Hollywood blockbuster actors, like, doing a more artistic period piece sort of thing, you could do worse. Mm -hmm. And if you enjoy watching uh, Tom Holland's slow progress of making heart eyes at every single Avenger, this is where it started. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What's up next week? Next week... We have two sequels going head-to-head. Two sequels? Yes, S-E-A. We have Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, as well as Speed 2, Cruise Control. (laughs) So, Uh, there's no way that that episode cannot be fun. Man, I know some folks watch the movies along with us. Definitely watch both of those. They're both very fun for very different reasons. (laughs) Yes. Also, hey, cannibalism is going to make a comeback. (laughs) Should I rewatch Speed before watching this one? I probably should, shouldn't I? Make sure that I have the continuity. I mean, half of the main characters from the first film don't even come back for the second one. Yeah, poor Keanu. He knew what he was not getting into. <laughs> but thanks for joining us for this journey into the heart of the sea. And through the life of Pi. And if you want to catch us for the sequel to this episode, 
You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pause and Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.